Section 14 of An American Vendetta. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An American Vendetta A Story of Barbarism in the United States by T. C. Crawford. Chapter 10 since returning from the wilds of murderland along the border of west virginia and kentucky i have been asked by many people who know this country how i could possibly have ventured to go into such a desperate region j brisbane walker of colorado who has made a fortune in the west and who intends to settle down in new york to enjoy it while he educates his boys lived for a number of years in west virginia mr walker is a man of the most wide and varied experience when a mere youth he was taken from west point by burlingham and appointed by him to a high position in the chinese army mr walker saw active service in china and since has been in the most lawless parts of the west during the developments of the last ten years he regards the west virginia regions as much more dangerous to strangers than any other place he has ever seen. He said to me, You do not appear to realize where you have been. Why, with my knowledge of the situation there, I would not go over the ground you have and talk with the people you did for $50,000 in cash. Your life was in danger every moment after you passed into the Hatfield region. The fact that you were with a man who was well known to them would have counted as nothing if their suspicions had by chance been directed against you. That they were not is simply a miracle. You were lucky, that is all. But that does not change the fact of the immense risk you ran. I have found Mr. Walker's opinion echoed by many others who know this West Virginia country. I am beginning to realize what I did not in the benumbed state I was in from the constant hammering of the mountain roads and from the dullness that creeps over one when he has been five or six days without food, that there is danger in murderland and that investigation of the murderous ways of this barbarous country might lead one to find nothing more interesting than a bullet from the bush. The morning after my arrival at Logan Courthouse, I learned of the misadventures of a New York newspaper correspondent who had come into this country several days ahead of me. The night of his arrival he was waited on by a committee who wanted to know what he was doing in the town. The line of their inquiries produced such an impression upon the visitor's mind that he left town the next morning at seven o'clock. He was in such a hurry that he would not wait until noon when he could have obtained a horse. Such was his haste to get out of Murderland before any other committee could call upon him that he left on foot. I heard of him several times afterwards from the mountaineers, who soon learned to regard him as a detective. Everybody knows all there is to know about any visiting strangers. Anse Hatfield had heard of this correspondent. He asked me about him and if I knew him. I was obliged to answer in the negative. That was enough for Anse Hatfield. The man had said he was from New York, and here was another man from New York who did not know him. 
No greater proof was necessary to show that the first comer was a detective. It will not do to assume that there is no punishment for the murderers in this country. The Hatfields, who are the most successful of the killers on the east side of the Tug River, live in constant terror of their lives. Their eyes are constantly rolling about, searching for someone who is after them. They hardly dare sleep for fear the bullet of some friend or relative of their many victims may come to make their sleep eternal. It is very difficult to get any expressions of opinion from even the best people in this section of the country favoring the punishment of people who commit the crime of murder. Even when you obtain opinions from the people of adjoining southern states, you find the sentiment very similar to that of this neighborhood. I met a Virginia judge during my visit here. He came in for the purpose of buying land. It was really refreshing to talk with this judge and to obtain his view of social ethics. In the first place, this Virginia judge believes in the duello. He says it is the only way quarrels can be settled between gentlemen. I asked him what that line of argument proved. I said, suppose the wrong man goes down. He turned on me and said, he didn't expect anybody from the North to comprehend his line of argument, that the institution was one which was peculiarly Southern. But, said I to him, the duello is even passing away with you. He admitted the truth of this, at the same time expressing his sorrow for the fact. This Virginia judge admitted with great frankness that the Negro votes in the state of Virginia were not counted and that the whites had practically disfranchised the blacks. He said that as a judge, he would unhesitatingly send a man to prison who should be brought before him and convicted of such illegal counting, but as an individual and a man, he approved of such a course. He also believes in the shotgun settlement of insults and to avenge domestic honor. He thinks that they are not cases to be tried in courts at all. This opinion of this Virginia judge represents the higher Southern view in Virginia and in Kentucky. I have been told that there are any number of mountain districts in Virginia equally as wild as the district I have just visited. The general carrying of arms by Southern men must have very much to do with the violent and murderous quarrels which break out from time to time in the South. In Washington, the other day, I had my attention called to the fact that there is no Southern man, however high in rank or position, who may not belong to the class of men who carry concealed weapons. At the hotel where I was in Washington, there was a very prominent Southern official. He holds one of the highest offices under the government. He is also one of the best paid. He is a great favorite with the president and is a man who had a distinguished record in the Confederate service during the war. He is a man of ability and, as the world goes, of good character. Yet, underneath his veneering of civilization, there dwells the spirit of barbarism which transforms this polite, well-mannered gentleman into a savage. He has the habit of going off on periodical fits of drunkenness, and when he is in this condition, 
He is dangerous. When I was in Washington, he had been drunk in his room for three days and had not been near his office. His wife, becoming alarmed at his continued intemperance, sent for some friends to come and disarm him, as she did not think he should have weapons in his possession while he was in such a condition. There was, taken from the person of this distinguished official, a huge Colt's revolver, half as long as his arm, and two great bowie knives. I make no comment on the three days' drunkenness, because some of the distinguished officials from the North have a habit of going off at times to relax themselves from the severe strain of their public duties. But what was this official doing with a great revolver and two big knives? It is possible that he was connected with some vendetta, and that his life had been threatened. The carrying of concealed weapons is a common thing among Southern members, but of course it is by no means as common as the carrying of weapons among the common people of the South. In Logan County, I do not think there is any man so poor who could not afford to have a Winchester rifle. It is regarded in every household as an indispensable article of domestic furniture. Revolvers and knives are found in every house as a matter of course. The theory of their being in the possession of everyone is based upon the fact that the law is not enforced and the courts are powerless to protect the inhabitants. There is much more in this phase of the Southern question than has ever been advanced against the South. Concerning the Negroes, that is an affair which the Southern people will have to regulate for themselves. That is not an affair in which the government can interfere. But there is no doubt that there are numerous sections in the South where just such scenes of violence and lawlessness are perpetrated as I have found in the southwest of Virginia. There is now going on a vendetta in northern Alabama. Kentucky is noted throughout its borders for its family quarrels. They shoot as freely in Georgia and South Carolina as they do in Virginia. While there may be no more murders perpetrated in proportion to the population than in the North, there is no doubt that the killing in the South is done by a different grade of people, by people who, in the North, are classed as respectable and well-to-do. There does not appear to be any distinct criminal class who commit murder for profit or money. The murders are those resulting from personal quarrels. The Hatfield crowd have been the most successful of all the outlaws in the South. The reason of this is that they are isolated from all railroad communication and are so strongly fortified in the mountains. Their women are faithful slaves who work for them without questioning any of their edicts. They seem to regard the men as heroes and that whatever they do is perfectly right. Mrs. Hatfield, the wife of Aunt Hatfield, is one of the strongest and most muscular-looking women I've ever seen. She has intensely black hair, a very broad, swarthy face, and a stout, powerful figure. She is the mother of twelve children, every one of whom she has successfully raised. There has never been a funeral in this family. The mother is as hard as iron. She does not know how to read or write, and never even saw a railroad. 
She has no more idea of what is right and wrong than a mastiff dog. She has always lived in this wild country, where the men are the absolute masters, and during the last twenty-five years she has been a contented and prosperous wife of one of the most desperate fighters and most successful hunters of this region. She is as devoted to him and his reputation as is the wife of the most distinguished general. This country, which is now dominated and controlled by as lawless a class of people as is known in any country, is wonderfully rich and needs only a railroad to come up through it to drive out this outlaw class and develop as rich a line of coal and iron properties as can be found anywhere. The timber in this region is very heavy and especially valuable. But land speculators and railroad capitalists have, up to the present time, fought rather shy of this region. A week or two before I set out, I had a talk with one of the officers of the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad, and he told me that he would not go up through this Logan County country for a majority of the stock of his road. I understand that prospectors have, in any number of instances, met with very severe punishment for their temerity in venturing into this country without being properly vouched for. Along the line of Peter's Creek, during the past two months, there have been a number of murders of strangers which have not attracted the slightest attention. The people in that neighborhood, when they hear any shooting, simply go inside their houses and shut their doors. They have no curiosity whatever to know what is going on when the crack of the Winchester rifle is heard. The Phillips crowd who now control the Peters Creek region are even more desperate than the Hatfields. I do not think the Hatfields would shoot down strangers on general suspicion unless the stranger made some direct move against them. But over in the Peters Creek region, the fact that a man is a stranger is quite enough to invite shots from the numerous ambuscades which are occupied along the line of this most wretched locality. End of section 14. Recording by Linda Johnson.